So hello, everybody. Um, I'm joined by my new intern, my third intern this summer, Rusana Novakova. Um, and like the previous interns, Amelia and Felix, that you might have heard on past shows, Rusana also received the ACES internship grant to come work on the SRB podcast for a few months. So Rusana, just so listeners have a sense of who you are a bit, uh, why don't you tell a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Rusana. I'm a PhD candidate at the anthropology department at UC Berkeley, and I do my research in Russia. I'm actually in uh, Vladivostok right now. It's a city on the Pacific coast of Russia. Look it up if you never heard of it. And here I'm studying human environment relations. And um, I focus specifically on a recent drive to move back to the land. I'm researching the so-called Far Eastern Hector, which is a state land grant program. And uh, I look predominantly at collective land-based projects. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to Sahalin to volunteer in in a nature preserve that opened up on the Far Eastern Hectors. And I'm also engaged with an art community here in Vladivostok uh, who are building an open-air art space, also this state land thing. So, so what does it like, what does it mean? Like the drive to move back to the land? Is this like people who are leaving the city and, you know, go back, back to farming? Like we have this trend in America, right? Where this like organic farm movement where people are kind of doing these small farms. Is it something like that or? Yeah, exactly. So I'm looking at the forest in Hector, but it's only or one instantiation of a broader trend to relocate from the city to the countryside. It's a very diverse and fairly large movement. So you have eco-villages, you have people from Moscow buying up land and relocating kind of in the regions around it. You have neo-paganists, you have followers of the Anastasia movement. So, um, yeah, that's just like a way I look at it, that the Far Eastern Hector, this state-sponsored program, is just kind of one uh, example of a broader trend within the country. I have to ask, what is the Anastasia movement? (laughs) So the Anastasia movement, so there is this um, writer, he, he's originally from Novosibirsk, uh, so from Siberia. And in the 90s, I think, I think originally he was trained as a photographer, but in the 90s, he became a business person and started traveling down the river Ob to, I don't know, sell goods to people, you know, who live in these faraway places and don't have access to, you know, lots of stuff. And so there he supposedly met this woman in the wilderness, in the woods, who taught him all this wisdom, you know. And then he, um, a few years later, he started writing about this encounter uh, with this wise Anastasia, who taught him all about life and the meaning of life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so then his books, they just became so freaking popular and people were like reading it and getting together and discussing. And I guess one of the things that she's teaching is 
moving back to the land and reconnecting with your roots, et cetera, et cetera. And so in book five, and it's kind of weird that I know that, he describes the future, like the, the future of Russia, where Putin basically uh, creates a state land grant program where every Russian citizen is allowed to have uh, is entitled, right, to a free plot of land, one hectare. And then uh, some of these followers, they took it like very seriously and started lobbying with municipal and regional officials to, to make it a reality. And that's how this program appeared in, for example, Bel Belgorod region, where literally Anastasia folks, they just lobbied and made it into a bill and later it was signed into the law so that that hector program appeared even before the far eastern hector oh i i think at some point we're going to have a whole we need maybe have a longer conversation about this it sounds fascinating especially since it seems to be a com a combination of i don't know people who are just kind of looking for a different mode of life right tired of the city and all sorts of weird characters <laughs> um, that no but the amazing part is that in the 90s it was really just all these you know uh disillusioned maybe intelligentsia people and it was all about just getting together in apartments in the kitchens and talking about it but then later on it like really kind of morphed into a bigger a movement that has more political valence, like, and people actually moved <laughs> to the countryside and lobbied with politicians and convinced some people to, you know, make it happen, uh, which, I don't know, it's really fascinating to me. This whole issue of like, you know, lobbying the government and whatnot and trying to change laws actually is a good segue into our interview this week, um, though in a, in a different way. So this week, the interview for this episode is um, with three people uh, who wrote a collectively wrote a book about Alexei Navalny. And the three people are Ben Noble, Jan Dolbaum and Morvan Lalouette. And they are the authors of Navalny, Putin's nemesis, Russia's future, uh, with a question mark. I think it's important to stay, say. And of course, also, we're, um, you know, there are parliamentary elections in Russia this weekend. And from what I understand, you uh, went to vote. So what was that like? What was like, what is it like to vote in Russia? And I was pretty smooth, which was, I guess, um, a bit unexpected because, you know, you read about all these violations, etc. But my voting station is right across the street from me. There were very few people. I think I was the only one who was there at the time. Three small boats, pretty straightforward. But uh, I wasn't able to vote in full, unfortunately. So I could only vote for the state Duma, but I couldn't vote for the regional Duma because I didn't have the right documents. So basically because I didn't live in Russia for several years, right? I was in the U.S. I didn't have a registration. So registration is something that we inherited from the Soviet Union. It's kind of like a stamp in your passport that says where you're officially registered. And so when I flew back to Russia, I was like, well, I need to get this registration handled. <laughs> because otherwise it's just like such a pain. So I registered at my parents' house in Rostov region, 
And since I'm in Vladivostok, I had to petition and submit this kind of application online in order to be allowed to vote here. However, what I didn't know that there were two separate applications, one to vote for the state Duma and the other to vote for the regional Duma. Yeah, and because I only filled out one of them, I couldn't do the, the second ballot, which was kind of upsetting because I was really excited. Uh, my district has this really cool and active candidate from the Communist Party, uh, Nadezhda Tireluiva. I was really excited about an opportunity to vote for her, but couldn't do it, unfortunately. Um, also, another thing that relates to our conversation about Navalny is that I was like, well, I'm going to use smart voting, the system that helps you determine which candidate is more likely to win over candidates from the United Russia. And so when I tried to register on the website a couple of weeks ago, it didn't work. And I was like, what is going on? Went on Google, turned out that Raskomnadzor, uh, so this uh, body that oversees, basically that censors, cens censors internet, uh, they banned the website. So I was like, oh, lucky me, I have VPN. So I turned on my VPN. I was like, no, you're not going <laughs> to. I'm going to get registered. Yeah, so I got registered and Smart Voting later sent me the names of candidates who are the most promising, right? And all of them were from the Communist Party, which was kind of interesting and surprising. And, and Nadezhda was the one who it was, you know, suggested to me um, to vote on her. But none of that happened because of these bureaucratic issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know, being a, a voter in America, I'm certainly familiar with bureaucratic issues, <laughs> um, uh, you know, given the, the complications and, and different processes of registering the vote and voting and stuff, depending on what state you live in. It's, it's quite a mess. Um, I, I did read this morning that uh, Google and Apple, uh, because of pressure from the Russian government, removed the smart voting app from their app stores. Um, I, I, I doubt at this point it, it will, it will make a difference, uh, the fact that they removed it. Cause I'm assuming most people have already, you know, prepared themselves for what they wanted to vote for. So. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova. We, you just heard us having a chat. And uh, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to the podcast's Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So, uh, Rusana, why don't you uh, introduce our, um, our guests? Uh, Jan Matti Dolbaum is a postdoctoral researcher at Bremen University, specializing in activism and civil society in Russia. 
Morvan Lalouette is a PhD candidate in comparative politics at the University of Kent, Canterbury, UK. And Ben Noble is a lecturer in Russian politics at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies, an associate fellow at Chatham House, and a senior research fellow at the Higher School of Economics, Moscow. His research interests include Russian domestic politics, legislative politics, and the lawmaking process in non-democratic states. Here's Jan Dolbaum, Morvan Lalouette, and Ben Noble. It's really uh, good to talk to all three of you, Jan, uh, Morvan, and Ben, about your new book about uh, Navalny. Um, but just so people know who's talking and who's not, um, could you please briefly introduce yourself? And why don't you start, Jan? Yeah, I'm Jan Matti Dolbaum. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bremen in Germany. My name's Ben Noble. I'm lecturer in Russian politics at University College London. I'm an associate fellow at Chatham House, and I'm also a senior research fellow at the High School of Economics Moscow. Uh, my name is Morvan Lalouet. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate in comparative politics at the University of Kent in Canterbury in the UK. Okay. So, Rusana, you're up. All right. Um, so our my first question would be, why did you feel the need to write a book about Navalny for the Western audience? The idea came to Ben, who reached out to us uh, on Twitter in January of this year when Navalny returned to Russia. And he first asked us, uh, is there a good book on Navalny in English? And our, our answer was no, there is no such book. And after a quite brief conversation, we decided we should write it ourselves. And I think that uh, what uh, prompted us the most was, of course, the, 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 the huge amount of media attention that Navalny got first when he got poisoned and then when he returned to Russia, but also the very heavy strong politicization of Navalny's case, which was picked up by, by people in pro-Russian media to say that he was an ugly racist, uh, the whole scandal with Amnesty International, and a whole black and white picture that emerged of Navalny at the time, which made us think that, uh, well, it would be interesting to tell Navalny's stories in, in uh, details uh, with nuances. I think Morvan summarized it very well. Uh, we wanted to also bring our various different strengths to the table, um, thinking that we wanted to get a book published so quickly, uh, uh, specifically before the state Duma elections that are happening this month in September 2021. We realized having three people made writing a book more feasible than just having one person, but also, you know, Jan. Uh, brought to the table his existing research with activists, Navani's activists in the regions that, you know, he conducted a whole range of interviews between 2017 and 2021. And of course, Morvan's research on uh, liberalism in Russia, um, as well as his existing research into Navalny, meant that we could hit the ground running. And given the nature of the book, this isn't a book that bases its authority, that bases its content on lots of new interviews with Navalny and his team. Uh, Navalny was imprisoned by the time we started writing the book. Um, and, we, uh, and, and so we could synthesize what's already out there in Russian, as well as in English, as well as drawing on our background knowledge of Russian politics. 
you know, he he is a he is a Alexei Navalny is a, certainly a compelling figure, right? Um, he, you know, he encompasses so much both as an individual and his own determination, um, and also he has in the last couple of years, you know, increasingly become representative of a larger movement. Um, and and one of the things that you write in the book is that Navalny is different things to different people. Right. And, and that, I think that's very, very true. Right. And you, you kind of stated this in the beginning, uh, more of on like, you know, some people see him as a nationalist. Some people see him as a savior. I mean, there's a whole bunch of gambits. So I was actually interested to hear, um, and we'll start with you, Jan, who is your Alexei Navalny? What, what is your personal, like what, what captivates you about him? So, um, of course, we have to start um, answering this question by saying that it's precisely the point that we don't um, have, you know, a, a personal Navalny, and that puts us in the position perhaps to, to write a book about all the different Navalny's that are out there. Um, but if, if you press <laughs> on that, um, I would say that um, having traveled uh, several Russian regions and having talked to um, his activists and uh, supporters, but also people who are activists who don't support Navalny, um, but, but meeting people in his, um, in his regional offices, I was very impressed by these people. And um, that forms my personal picture of Navalny to an extent. I mean, we can debate his politics, obviously, and we will do that uh, during this podcast. But what he's been able to do is mobilize um, a number of very, you know, inspiring, intelligent, and engaged young people, usually young people, um, uh, throughout Russia. And, and I think that's, that's an important achievement. Um, I, just one example of Krasnodar, I was talking to, um, to a person 21 years old, and he was um, an activist. He had been an activist for the liberal Yablaka party, and now was in, in Navalny's uh, regional office. He said he didn't agree with everything that Navalny had to say, but, but he was immensely well-read. He quoted um, political theorists to me that I, as, you know, as a political scientist, um, hadn't been able to quote. In that to that length and 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 he was very well read and engaged and that's just one example of, of the people Navalny mobilized and that you know puts puts his his uh, his um movement in a, in a positive light to me at least from that perspective uh when talking about Navalny we found it tricky not to you overuse certain words and one of those words was charisma um and it's undeniable, I think, that Navalny is charismatic. So if you ask the question, what draws you to Navalny? Why write a book about him? What, what's special about him that makes him stand out? There is the, the fact that he is charismatic in a way that other people aren't in Russian politics, as well as combining that charisma with other practical skills, like he's a trained lawyer, he has knowledge of financial markets, he has a clearly a very good way with words and using social media. But uh, that charisma, I think, is one of the, the reasons why I was at least drawn to him, and I imagine my, my co-authors might agree. But also another thing that comes across is his ability, even in incredibly difficult situations, 
to have a smile on his face. Now, it, it, this can very easily descend into me sounding like a fanboy of Navalny, and I definitely can go on uh, for a very long time about crit critical aspects uh, of Navalny. But if we're thinking about those things that make him stand out, you know, his speeches in court earlier this year really are quite extraordinary and they're inspiring and so you can see why even for those people who disagree with what he's said in the past those statements that are racist xenophobic or nationalist um the way that they are not gonna they're not gonna forgive navani for saying them but they're willing to overlook them because of these other qualities these other things that he can bring to the table uh, personally, I came to Navalny because I was uh, interested in Russian liberalism and in the Russian liberal opposition. And uh, while I was starting my, my doctoral research and my, my, my first PhD projects, I, I, uh, to be honest, I found that most of the liberal crowd is... Uh, uh, can sound a bit stale, and and for many of them, uh, are stuck in organizations that are quite old already. Uh, if you look at the post-Soviet uh, Russian history, and when I looked at Navalny, of course, you, I, I I saw something that was both uh, innovative that that tried to to renew that that Russian liberalism that already had a first history in the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s and a history that was in, in deep crisis. And also what I found very interesting with him, uh, although of course I do not share many of his politics, is that he was also kind of testing the limits of liberalism in Russia, first with his nationalism and then more recently with his kind of left turn or populist term, uh, we could debate later what that means. But I think that this this combination of innovation and, and yeah, testing the limits of liberalism made him quite interesting in comparison to, I'm sorry, other uh, uh, figures of Russian liberalism today. You know, you're, you're, you're all certainly right about his charisma and his wry humor and his, you, you know, his use of popular culture in a lot of his messaging. Um, you know, he's, I think I agree. He's incredibly effective. Do you know if, you know, is there a team around him that helps curate and, and develop his image? Or do you, do you get the sense that this is basically him and he's mostly managing his own kind of, you know, public persona? Uh, and, and the book, there's a, a, a quote that I, like very much, uh, which dates back from, I think, 2014. Uh, he was interviewed by a, a poet and activist, Dmitry Bikov, and, and uh, he asked him, like, who writes your blog? And Navalny answers, uh, the collective Navalny, Kolektivny Navalny. And I think it sums it up pretty well that uh, I think that Navalny developed his own style, and I think he is responsible for, for, for that kind of brand. But at some point, and I think this is one of his major success, he was able to delegate some of the style, some of the, the specifics to uh, quite competent and quite even brilliant associates who were able to, uh, uh, I'd say that, to... to um, kind of embody Navalny and, and uh, replace him, especially when he was in jail. So I think it's both a combination of something that is deeply personal to him. And this is why for many people, I think it sounds true. Uh, and also an ability to, to, and it's a story that we try to tell in the book, like an ability to gather a team to, to organize himself. 
So, um, you know, one of the, and, and Morvan, you've already uh, mentioned this, is that, you know, when you're talking about Alexei Navalny, you are, you know, we are all in a certain conversation with Russian liberalism. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm personally fascinated with the history of Russian liberalism, even going back to into the 19th century and beyond. Um, but it, it remains a very slippery subject, especially, you know, speak somebody like me who's coming from an American context. Uh, when, you know, I hear the word liberalism, I, of course, you know, see it through an American framework and Russian liberalism isn't necessarily that. So what, Marvan, what is Russian liberalism? Uh, thank you very much. That's a, a very interesting question. Uh, I don't think I will I will dig into the the rich and long history of uh, of Russian liberalism, which is, by the way, something that Navalny doesn't seem to be interested in at all. Uh, you don't have the impression that he's very interested in, for example, Tsarist Russia. Um, in, in my understanding, uh, Navalny is is. Uh, comes from from that liberal tradition that kind of was reborn during the perestroika and that shared a number of core beliefs which are of course a rule of law state separation of powers and a market economy uh, not only was a liberal and called himself a liberal very young uh, when he was already a teenager and uh, it's he's an interesting figure in that regard because uh, if you if you look at what he said about this youth he, he shared the core beliefs of these people uh, at the moment when the Soviet Union was falling apart and then he became critical of some of the tendencies of that particular liberalism that was born at the, the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s and in particular he was extremely critical of the tendency of some liberals or Democrats, you find both uh, terms, uh, to basically argue in favor of a strong hand in order to implement democracy. And this is something that he has criticized very strongly. He's not a man who criticized himself or looked reflexively at what he has done or said a lot. But in this regard, he, he clearly condemned uh, the, the practice of, of uh, what happened under Yeltsin's term, the 1993 crisis when, when Yeltsin basically shelled his own parliament or the 1996 presidential election when that, that was according to Navalny rigged so that Democrats could wield elections without democracy basically. So I think that, and this is also what, uh, to sum it up, what makes Navalny interesting is that he's both a, a, a product of that late 80s, early 90s liberalism in all its excesses and in all its disregard in some respect for democracy, but also someone who tried to reflect critically uh, um, on that, that liberal heritage in both, I think, positive features like the disregard for, for democracy and also in negative features, if one could say, because one of his criticism of uh, 1990s liberalism was precisely made from a nationalistic point of view and saying that liberals in Russia were too soft on immigration, did not dare to speak against uh, what he calls ethnic criminality and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm still kind of confused as to, you know, what are their core principles? Okay, so clearly democracy um, I'm assuming, uh, in terms of social economics, some kind of free market, something clearly, I mean, around the debates that are coming out or the reactions, uh, uh you know, a kind of, um, 
absolute absolutist free speech, right? Like a really open free speech. Uh, are there other qualities, you know, Ben, Jan, or even Marvon, uh, that are that encompass a Russian liberal? If I, I can add, and maybe then Ben and, and, and Jan can, can say, uh, have, have their check on this, but I think that one of the core principles is to look at the West. And this is something that is, I think, very defining in, in Russian liberalism in general and in Navalny in particular, is that idea that Russia is not a specific civilization. And even when, when Navalny was a nationalist, he never said that. He is, of course, conscious that Russia has some specificities and that, of course, you can't apply Western models uh, mechanically to, to Russian realities. But on the other hand, he has always said very clearly that the model is Western, that Russia is a part of the West of Europe, and that because of uh, what happened during the Soviet Union, Russia has kind of diverged from, from that, that path and should return to, to this uh, place where it actually belongs. And I think this is one of the main features, I think, of, of Russian liberalism today and something we find in Navalny, obviously. Yeah, the idea that the Soviet Union presented some kind of Sondervig, right? That it, it kind of knocked Russia off if it's almost, you know, inevitable trajectory in, in some respects. Ben, Jan, anything to add? Yeah, um, just perhaps to uh, to summarize and, and to add one, one little bit of detail. Um, I think what Navalny really shares with the, with the mainstream um, Russian liberal are these uh, principles that, uh, that Morvan has, has named that is um, functioning a representative um, democracy of a, of a parliamentary uh, kind then um, uh, a market economy and the rule of law and um, a res respect for human rights. And what Navalny is clearly, where Navalny is clearly diverging um, is in terms of social policy. So he's softer on the very widespread notion that the individual is the master of his or own fate. I think that's very core principle in, in Russian liberalism. And that includes something like a very, very cautious approach to social policy, to welfare transfers and that sort of thing. And Navalny has been, um, has been open to a more center-left perspective in, in that regard. I think that's an important way where he diverges from, from the liberal core. I was going to ask uh, Jan a follow-up question, but I realize you're the host of the podcast that I think you know, uh, one, uh, and it allows me to make a broader point about the book, that this is clearly not a traditional biography, that Navalny is only 45. And uh, we also realized that to make sense of Navalny the man, you have to make sense of Navalny the movement. And so what I wanted to ask Jan was, um, or maybe suggest that Jan could add some detail here, that his interviews with the activists in the regions could be one way of approaching the question of what does Navalny think about liberalism? What's his conception um, as reflected in them? So if they are associating themselves with him because they think he is the best positioned liberal politician, uh, what is it that they talk about in the interviews? Uh, and, and before maybe Yan can add some of that colour, I'd say that that is one of the strengths of the book. I began the podcast by saying that the book doesn't base its authority on lots of original interviews with Navalny, his team, his family, but it does draw on these set of interviews that Yan conducted in the field. Um, and so, yes, it's a synthesis of the press, but it also is based on, on these original interview transcripts. But yeah, but, but to liberalism, Yan, what, do, what, do the, what have the activists said about liberalism in the field? 
Yeah, so what, what really is almost universal in these interviews is that they, they think um, there should be a way to replace people at the top of the political hierarchy by a, you know, a democratic procedure. So what, what's in, in Russian called so the changeability of power and, and the, the rule of law, obviously. So the politicized um, justice system. These are two things that are very stable across all of these interviews. And then of course, corruption Navalny's core topic as well. And then um, when we go deeper into the actual policy demands that these people have, we, we find some divergence. So there are people who call themselves uh, liberal leftists who agree with um, things that Navalny has, has demanded for increasing the welfare state or increasing investment in health and education, for example. Um, there are hardcore libertarians who disagree with all of that, who say that, as I said, the individual is supremely um, responsible for his or her own fate and the state shouldn't intervene at all. And then you get also the occasional nationalist, um, although that's that's really sort of uh, an outlier, I think, when you look at the um, the composition of his, of his regional activists. So yeah, in terms of liberalism, that's really a very basic set of principles that almost everybody shares when it comes to uh, more uh, more uh, uh, policy-related questions than that we find some some divergence, I'd say. I, I want to ask about corruption because this is a core, you know, this is where he started. Uh, this has been the main, you know, focus of a lot of his critique of the current Russian system, uh, though he's branched out into other political concerns in the last couple of years, but corruption remains like the bedrock of his political activism and, and political critique. At the same time, sometimes I feel that, you know, it, it sounds a bit naive, uh, his view of, you know, in terms of the solution of corruption, which is, you know, follow the law, et cetera. But as we know, corruption in Russia is really embedded into the functioning of a lot of aspects of, you know, society. Um, and it has been for a long time. It's a historical problem as well as a structural problem. So what is his approach toward corruption? What does he see as the way to deal with it, this major problem that even, you know, state people in the state try to deal with? Go ahead, Ben. I was going to say that it's an interesting point about uh, thinking through Navalny's solutions when it comes to corruption. But I'd say for Navalny, really, corruption is there primarily as a rallying cry. It's not as if he's writing lots of dry reports, which, uh, uh, you know, he might be able to do dry reports into corruption and coming up with solutions, which we know certain people were doing around the same time that he rose to prominence as, a, as an anti-corruption activist. Uh, so I think we shouldn't necessarily criticize him for his lack of, uh, you know, concrete policy recommendations, because at the end of the day, he is using the fight against corruption as a political message. And he sort of stumbled on this really originally, um, at least the way that it seems to us when writing the book. He tries to get rich at the end of the 1990s. He trains as a lawyer. He buys some shares as a member of the, of the you know, growing middle class in Russia. And then he starts asking questions because he can't get answers. He can't get the information that he wants to, including who is the majority shareholder of this particular company. And then he sort of almost by accident discovers the ability of an anti-corruption message to grow a following to help 
um, increase his prominence and then to build a political movement. So I think the focus on corruption has always been intertwined with politics. And so we should be maybe um, easier on him when it comes to the fact that he hasn't got this wonderful solution as to how to actually get rid of corruption in Russia. Yeah, I wanted to add a quick point to this, and I think this is a, a, a problem of optics when you look at Navalny from the West and even for some people from Russia, is that Navalny became known because of his fight of, against corruption. This is what brought him to 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 uh, the public sphere in Russia. But not only was many things before he got interested in, in, in into corruption, and he was a liberal before he was interested in corruption. He tried to, as, as Ben reminded, to, to make a career in business before uh, getting interested in corruption. I think that it, it, it's, in my view, more useful to look, as Ben said, as, as cor at corruption as a rallying cry and something that also helped him overcome or try to overcome that crisis of liberalism and liberal opposition in Russia, where, and this is a very important difference, I think, in, with uh, between him and other liberals when, when Navalny started his career, is that if you look at what he said, says, he doesn't talk a lot about human rights or he doesn't talk a lot about the, the, the Russian political system. He used corruption as a way to sell that idea that you need separation of power, that you need a free press, that you need independent courts. And I think that this is, uh, has been kind of important in his approach to things, that, that this was the thing that would bring people to his political solution rather than the other way around. Well, um, I think perhaps it's easier to, or more accurate to, to think about what Navalny has been proposing in terms of necessary conditions, um, you know, that have to be in place before anything um, meaningful can be achieved in, in fighting corruption. And that is exactly what, what Paul has just listed. And that doesn't mean that these are, uh, um, uh, that these are sufficient conditions, right? Um, there, as you said, Sean, there is perhaps something deeper that wouldn't go away just if we make um, if we replace people at the top of, of every um, a branch of power and introduce laws that that make it easier for the justice system to pers persecute um, uh, corruption. Um, so that there might be something more that we need to get rid of this problem, but there's definitely a set of things that we absolutely need, and these are the things that Navalny has been proposing. Yeah, because I, I have to say, when it comes to corruption, one of the things I, I constantly think about is, and, and again, you know, maybe I'm being unfair and focusing on, well, what is the, what is the solution since no one has solved it yet? But it seems to me because of the embeddedness of corruption, and here it goes to exactly what you're saying, Morvan, about the separation of powers and democracy. It seems to me, in order to deal with the problem of corruption, it almost necessarily requires almost extra-legal, undemocratic methods. Um, and I mean, maybe that's just my pessimism in terms of dealing with the question, but it, there, it, it seems to be a contradiction of sorts, I guess. I don't know if either any of you have a, have a comment. Yeah, I was just uh, picking up on, on this um, because I think a very important point to, to make and, and one that we try to make in the book as well is this idea of instrumentalization. Right. Um, Navalny has been accused of using people, young people mostly, um, for his own political ends and uh, mobilizing people to protest just to uh, just to 
gain power himself, perhaps. And and for sure, he wants to gain power. <laughs> and then that, that is pretty clear. But um, I think there's more to that. I think the, the um, accusation of instrumentalization isn't, um, it comes usually from, you know, uh, people and outlets associated with the Kremlin um, or other, um, you know, other observers who, who accuse him of that. But I think you can also look at this the other way around. And just like Ben has said, Navalny is also being instrumentalized or was being instrumentalized by uh, various people who seek political change and who seek to implement these very you know, necessary conditions that we talked about earlier um, and, and use this figure as somebody who they thought might be best placed to achieve that, to sort of win stage one and after that, defect perhaps to a different political force once political competition became became possible. I was just going to add to that that one thing we try and underscore in the book is the way that Navalny thinks about the struggle ahead, and that's in terms of sort of two stages, a two-stage battle. The first stage is to get rid of Putin, to have a Russia without Putin. It's the familiar rallying cry that he will shout um, when he's free uh, in, in, in rallies that he has shouted, sorry, I should say, before being imprisoned at the front of these rallies. So get rid of Putin. Then after that, the second stage of the battle is to create in Russia um, the conditions that Morvain Yanov has spoken about. So to bring about a system in which um, corruption is rooted out, in which there is a liberal multi-party um, parliamentary democracy. And so I think Navalny is under no illusions. He's not thinking, get rid of Putin and corruption will magically disappear. He's not naive like that. Um, uh, and so he very much regards it as part of stage two of this battle. But the other reason I think, and this is maybe segueing into a slightly different topic, but the other reason why focusing on the two-stage battle we think is really important is because it allows you to make sense of things like people turning up to rallies at the beginning of this year when he was imprisoned, saying, well, I don't really agree with him, I don't agree with certain positions, and yet I'm going to lend him my support, because they could support Navalny for stage one. They could say, um, I support him insofar as he wants to bring down Putin, but they might not be on board with him for stage two, insofar as stage two also involves, uh, quote unquote, normal politics of different people um, having different political platforms, different parties um, vying for power. Uh, and, and so there they might be uh, not willing at all to go out onto the streets and support Navalny because they'll have their own uh, political party to support. I, I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm really struck in this two-stage, you know, plan, such as it is, how this has shades of late imperial Russia, <laughs> where it was a similar situation where you have a, a pluralism of political opposition against the Tsarist regime, and the, what bound that together was, you know, getting rid of the Tsar. And here, we, it seems we have a similar situation. And of course, we know what happened in 1917. And so I'm wondering if, if you have a sense of Navalny's understanding of Russian history. I'm curious how he, you know, places himself in the tradition of Russians revo Russia's revolutionary past. Uh, as I I think I hinted a, a bit earlier. I think what's, it's it's something interesting that 
I never got a sense that Naomi was interested in the pre-revolutionary past. He is clearly uh, someone who reads a lot, especially in jail. And uh, I once grabbed, for example, during Twitter conversation that he had read Alexei Yurchak that we were mentioning uh, a bit before, uh, which kind of surprised me. Uh, but he's clearly a, a, a well-read man, but I've, I've never got the sense that he was interested in this, in these historical parallels or this idea that Russian's history, Russia's history is cyclical and that you find similar structures uh, um, um, along the way. And I've, I've read his blog a lot and I've never found mentions of it. So, uh, and I think that it, it also speaks to, to another point that I would relate again to, to his particular brand of, of, of liberalism is uh, the, the fundamental optimism that he has and which makes him depart from, from many other Russian liberals who tend to say that, that Russia is kind of stuck in this, this cycles and, and, and stuck in a culture that makes him, makes it alien to, to freedom, to, to representative democracy. And Navalny constantly repeats that, that this is not the case. That, that we can do it, actually, that, that, that there is no reason why Russia should be stuck in, in that repetition in these cycles. And, and this is, I think, that this brand of optimism is something that is very defining uh, to Navalny, and, and it puts him apart from many liberals who, who are prone to that despair, also prone to that... Um, uh, how to say this, that very elitist uh, way to, to look at things, saying, well, the Russian people are some kind of cattle that needs a strong hand. These people, they need, you know, the guidance of the intelligentsia. Navalny has absolutely no intelligentsia pathos or, or things like that. He says, well, people understand that corruption is bad. People want to live better. And if if they're put in, in, the, in the right conditions, Russia will thrive and people will support that way. Yeah, that optimism goes back to one of the reasons why he stands out in the crowd. Um, but if we're talking about uh, optimism and history, of course, not all Russians share Navalny's optimism. He might say that I'm optimistic that we can bring about this bright liberal democratic future. But for some Russians, maybe the reasons why they don't support him, they haven't voiced their support for him previously and now is because for them, they might have they might think that they've heard it all before, that Navalny could just be a Yeltsin 2.0, that the elite in the early 1990s promised similarly an optimistic, liberal, democratic future, and then they ended up being a hideous disappointment for so many Russians, and they associate those figures with uh, what they might see as the chaos of the 1990s and all the difficulties associated with that decade. So it's interesting when thinking about history, yes, I'm not talking about what Navalny thinks about history, and I'm certainly not talking about the end of the Tsarist period, although that's a fascinating parallel to draw, um, I think for, for lots of Russians now, when trying to make sense of Navalny and his reception in Russian society, people are thinking about the early 1990s, and it's certainly something that the Kremlin will play on, this idea that you might not like us, but if you back somebody like Navalny, you could see a return to the chaos of the 1990s. I want to talk about you know this issue of perception too, but from the West, you know, since your book is geared to a Western audience 
And Navalny, um, he falls into a, a long tradition of an, a Western fascination with Russian, quote-unquote, dissidents and oppositionists, right? Whether it's Sakharov or Solzhenitsyn or Khodorkovsky, um, you know, and, and he's positioned, and this is something your book is cri- really critiquing, this, you know, uh, you know, hero versus the evil Soviet-slash-Russian government, right? This is the kind of general historical view from the West of, of elevating these individuals. And Navalny certainly belongs to that pathic pantheon of, of oppositionist individuals. How much does this focus on the individual, you know, obscure or even illuminate oppositional politics in Russia? Jan? I think, um, so first of all, politics in Russia and so far as it is uh, looked at from the West, but also from Russia itself is very personalized and um, and and uh, or personified, as as Sam Green likes to say, um, in the, in the fact that you know Putin is clearly the center of it all, and and very deliberately so. And um, then it's sort of the mirror image would be to focus on uh, an individual too, um, who uh, challenges the, uh, the, the the power of, of of Putin and and his regime. Um, so. So we wrote a book about the individual Navalny, but obviously we we um, are very conscious that the individual Navalny can only be that specific individual in his you know in his context, and so we use the opportunity in the book to um, to 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 say something about the structural conditions that uh, produced Navalny, and I think these conditions are not just the um, specific brand of authoritarianism that that we have in Russia. That's the first thing. Um, authoritarianism that has some democratic elements to it, that, that has still not an officially censored press, that has still multi-party elections, that still provides some um, inroads for opposition, um, but that's closing them down one by one in interaction with Navalny, actually. Um, but there's also, uh, obviously, the corruption that we talked about and a large um, social inequality that results um, from some of the reforms from the 1990s, um, but that that also results from the absence of, you know, positive social mobility uh, that Navalny also often speaks about. And um, and these are things that, that produce somebody like Navalny and, 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 and an environment in which somebody like Navalny can, can thrive, perhaps. So um, corruption and attacking the oligarchs, actually, which is Navalny's also, um, uh, so Navalny has started to do that uh, for four years ago. Oligarchs, not in the, sen- in the sense of the 1990s, where they were sort of subverting the power of the state, but oligarchs in the sense of stabilizing the state. Uh, very rich business people who have deals with the criminal, who can enrich themselves on taxpayers' money, basically. And, and that taxpayers' money goes to yachts and, and vineyards uh, and not to the Russian population. So these are all structural uh, conditions that, that are very important to, to address, I think. Yeah, I was just going to add that going back maybe to the origin story of the book, when we were pitching this, we got some responses saying, ah, we don't really need a picture, an account of Navalny. What we need is an account of the opposition in post-Soviet Russia for a general reading, uh, readership to understand. And we were quite reluctant at the time. We said, no, no, Navalny is an important uh, enough person. But actually in writing the book, we've sort of ended up writing an account 
of an important section of the political opposition in Russia. It clearly doesn't cover each segment uh, in a balanced fashion. But insofar as Navalny ends up interacting with these different segments, um, you sort of do get a picture of opposition politics in Russia. So I suppose it's underscoring the fact that, yes, we're focusing on Navalny, the individual, but we also focus on the movement. And then tying into what Jan has said, we also discuss these structural conditions that affect not only the authorities, but other segments of the opposition, as well as Russian society more broadly. Uh, Rusana, you want to jump in with a question? Yeah, so I wanted to continue this conversation about the relationship between the man and the movement. And perhaps, Ben, since you already started talking about it, uh, maybe you could tell us a bit more about what the relationship between Navalny, the individual, and his movement is like. I'm going to actually throw this one to Jan, because I think he's the, he's, the, he's the best positioned person to answer this question. It's not a cop-out, but I'm, I'm more interested in what you answered. There we go, yeah. Sure. So I think we've, we've addressed several of, of important points uh, here already, uh, including, obviously, the fact that, that not everybody uh, likes Navalny for his, um, for his policy ideas, but also, um, perhaps to add here, the structure of his movement itself is an interesting thing to look at. Um, this is a, a structure that was a structure, we have to say, because these uh, organizations are now labeled extremists and uh, and um, dismantled. But as it existed until this year, it wasn't a very democratic structure. It was, um, it was a party in a sense, but it lacked the very important thing that most parties have, which is an, a, a a bottom-up influence channel. So um, members of the movement couldn't really decide what's happening at the top. They couldn't decide on um, on the policy plans or demands that was that were being raised, or or on, about the people who direct the movement. Um, so that was pretty much top down, and it was in in so far much more like a business structure, actually, also including the hiring procedures that that were in place. So it was really like a, a professional HR department, um, much more like a social movement that you might imagine, uh, you know, activists sitting around uh, in, a, in a big circle and, and deciding everything consensus based. That's not at all what happened. So in that in that way, uh, the relationship between Navalny and the movement was was pretty top down. On the other hand, of course, um, very strategically, they tried to capture some of the grassroots spirit that usually embodies or, or, or fills a, a um, social movement. And, and in the way, for example, that they tried very much to tie in with the existing activist structures in the, in the Russian regions. And that was very important for the resources for this movement. For example, one, one example we tell in the book in Perm, and there is a, this, this very fascinating socialist housing community. They have uh, three apartment blocks. And um, these are policy-wise very different from Navalny, but due to the fact that some of uh, the people in Navalny's local office in Perm came from that, um, from that community, they opened the courtyard fr from this place when Navalny wanted to hold a rally in Perm and, and didn't get a permission from the authorities. So that's privately owned space. And he was able to, uh, to set up shop there. And, and that's a very, uh, a very telling episode, I think, um, that, that ties in, in you know, very well with the idea to use the resources that are there on the ground, but at the same time, obviously try to direct it from the top in the direction that, that they would want to go. 
I could talk for, for, for hours about this, but I think, you know, leave it at that. I, I actually, uh, you know, in thinking about the evolution of, you know, the Russian opposition, um, you know, in 2011, in the protests with the parliamentary elections, then you had this, you know, coordinating effort of various, it was a, it seemed to me a, a, a far more visibly pluralist opposition movement where you had this, this, this effort to, through this coordination committee of, you know, kind of trying to bring together nationalists, liberals, leftists, it was a, and now it seems all of that in the last decade or so has funneled into Navalny. Um, what has happened to all of those other figures that, that were around in 2011 and now seem to have been, you know, sidelined or disappeared? And what does that say about the opposition today? So, yeah, I, I can start in this and, and uh, my co-authors will chip in because it's a very complicated story. But I think that what emerged from the coordination council of the opposition that was set up after the, the, the protest in 2011, 2012, was not very effective and was extreme, led to, to a lot of um, a lot of uh, empty talk and, and, and couldn't lead to anything. I'm not extreme. I, I don't know much about why they came to spend their time talking and, and they couldn't uh, effectively organize. But that's something that I think all people who participated in that experience uh, agreed upon. And then I think that the, uh, another extremely important factor was what happened in Crimea, because at the time, um, there was this idea that maybe you would have nationalists who would be actually anti-Putin and who might stand with the liberals in that fight against the uh, authoritarian regimes. And the first thing is that during the 2011-2012 uh, protests, what appeared is that there weren't that many nationalists who were ready to take that anti-Putin uh, road when you looked at that and there were studies about the ideological tendencies of people who marched during that winter. Nationalists were not that numerous. And then the nationalists, uh, the opposition in general, uh, was very strongly divided by the events in Crimea, the war in Donbass, which, and, and when you have people who end up, <clears throat> excuse me, fighting in Donbass against Ukraine, and at the same time, people who uh, marched for peace in Ukraine in Moscow, namely most specifically liberals, it's, I think, very difficult to build a coalition. And in some ways, uh, uh, this, this precluded uh, a, a, a broader unification. But uh, maybe my, my co-authors want to chip in on this. Yeah, so what I think what made the protests in 2011-12 appear so pluralist is precisely the lack of a competent and well-resourced organization that would that would lead them, and um, so here we had people come to the street for the very first time in their lives. Of course, there were many you know professional opposition politicians involved and and long-term activists, um, but the majority of people I think were um, people who had you know not had been politicized pretty uh, close to to these events and were participating in politics, in street politics for the first time. And I think what Navalny has been trying to do is to create a viable, well-resourced organization um, that can lead something like these protests 
um, to something more productive in a way um, than than we had ten years earlier. Uh, and and the question is whether Navani has succeeded. Obviously, given the repression, he has not. Um, but also, given the repression, he might have been closer to that, at least in the Kremlin's perspective, um, to 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 come up with such an organization. Um, and that made him made him perhaps very 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 dangerous. And and that might be a reason why the Kremlin took him out. Now. Yeah, I was just going to add a quick point that this sort of underscores your question, Sean, underscores a paradox that Navalny is trying to bring about a more pluralist liberal democratic system by becoming the clearly the most charismatic, you know, sink trying to be the, the most important leader um, of the opposition. Now, of course, I don't think Navalny sees himself as the leader of the opposition. He sees himself probably as the leading figure of the opposition. But I think we can make sense of that paradox by again referring to stage one and stage two. Navalny is trying to get as many people on board for stage one to uh, get rid of Putin. And then the uh, if we take Navalny by his word, if that were to happen, he would be absolutely fine with a system in which he were competing with other people. That's not to say that he would bend over easily. He is a politician who wants to win elections, who wants to be the president of Russia. But it would, I suppose, bizarrely be an indicator of Navalny's success, although it seems incredibly unlikely at the moment, for him to be the person who could win stage one, but then to become a minority political figure in stage two, because there are other people who have a better skill set to operate in that quote unquote more normal political environment. You know, um, I was taken by one of the book's goals um, that you said at the very beginning um, to analyze shades of gray or, you know, to show the complexity of Navalny as a political figure, even though you um, recognize that this may not be the most burning task for Russian politics today. And I appreciated that you made clear your position as Western academics as being, you know, outside the political battleground. And in this capacity, you're able to engage um, in this kind of task. So my question is, what do you see then as the most important um, task on the ground in Russia today uh, for someone, say, who practices engaged research or um, is on the political battlefield? Yeah, so uh, of course, I have, um, beginning this answer, I have to repeat that that we are academics and that we chose this uh, this position consciously and that we're certainly in no position to give advice uh, to people in on the ground in Russia. Um, but I think what is, uh, you know, from an analytical perspective, one of the most important obstacles to uh, to some sort of opposition success is um, what I would what I would term the fear of guilt by association, which is a very peculiar thing in Russia if you compare it to other autocracies. Um, that very very few people in the opposition are ready to build coalitions with one another, um, are ready to build tactical alliances. Um, and so, you know, Ksenia Sapchak uh, doesn't want to be associated with any, you know, any communists. Uh, communists don't want to be associated with uh, uh, with Navalny. Navalny perhaps doesn't want to be associated with uh, Maxim Katz or, you know, or whatever. So because everybody seems to be uh, 
um, very careful to, to uh, guard their image towards their own core supporters. And um, so that, that people sometimes forget that, that coalitions can be, uh, can be just for a moment and that you don't have to share every, uh, every policy position um, with with those people you are co co uh, coalescing with, um, Navalny has been trying to to do something like that with this smart voting initiative, um, where he's actually recommending to vote, for example, for communist candidates. But that's something that has uh, aroused a lot of discontent in Russian opposition circles. Uh, liberals who don't want to vote for for a Stalinist, for example, by principle, right? And and this is something that's quite peculiar, and that is something that's that's really uh, hampering, I think, uh, broad opposition success today. So, you know, we've been mostly talking about, you know, of course, Navalny, opposite the Russian opposition. Um, we haven't really dealt with the Russian state yet. Um, and they're a major player and, and, and going, you know, following Jan's comments, like one of the, the this guilt is by association is the Russian government, you know, it's gone through several different stages of a dealing with Navalny you know, individually, but also the opposition where it is in, you know, in 2011, 2012, the fallout there was a very, you know, targeted repression against the margins, right? So to cleave out, say, a, you know, Ksenia Sobchak and the nationalists or something like this, right? Or, or to neutralize um, uh, the leftists after the, the, the protests in March of 2012, after Putin's inauguration. Um, you know, and, and I, in the book, you, you talk a lot about the regime's adaptability and dealing with the opposition. Um, so I'd, I'd like you to address that more about the role of the Russian government in dealing and shaping politics for the opposition and the possibilities. Uh, yeah, again, I will start and, and uh, because it's a very, very wide question. And uh, I think that 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 adaptability is something that is very striking in, in, and I think is particularly revealing if you look at uh, Navalny's career because it, it, it sounds like a century ago now, but uh, for instance, uh, it was only eight years ago, I think in 2013, when Mos uh, Navalny wanted to run for mayor of Moscow, he was allowed to run and he even got uh, United Russia's signatures, uh, endorsements to do so. And uh, I think that, and, and this also, uh, kind of, I think, answers your question about aren't we focusing too much on, on one individual? And I think that if you look at the career of Navalny, you see in, in, in very bright terms that adaptability and also how much Russian politics has changed in the 10 or in the last 10 or last 20 years. And of course, it, in the book, we, we document this by looking at different things that that Moscow example is, is, is quite revealing, but it also extends to other other issues in, in political life, where, for example, in the 2019 uh, municipal elections in, in Moscow, uh, the liberals managed to 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 uh, get important victories, even at the lowest level of government in Moscow. And if you look at what happened today, uh, this year, sorry, uh, when uh, a couple of months back, all of these uh, municipal deputies were, were rounded up uh, during a forum under the pretext that this was organized by uh, Mikhail uh, Khodorkovsky's organization, you clearly see how the regime is adapting and how much it has changed uh, in the last 10 or, or 20 years, but 
yeah, maybe my, my co-authors want to add up to that, that picture. I was going to add that a useful case study, at least when I think about the adaptability of the Kremlin, especially in relation to the opposition, isn't focusing on Navalny, it's focusing on the Communist Party, KPRF, and thinking about the fact that until relatively recently, the Communist Party could be relied upon to be the largest and yet safest uh, systemic opposition party. But that's changed. It's changed for a variety of factors, including the younger, more radical activists in the regions. But it's also changed from the top as well. You know, Zuganov calling for people not to support the constitutional changes in 2020. That clearly annoyed people within the Kremlin. And so in response to that, we see various measures, including uh, Communist Party candidates being blocked. In elections. And so, you know, the Kremlin can be very nimble in uh, using carrots and sticks to try and manage the systemic opposition as well as the non systemic opposition. And so we're seeing, I suppose, um, a blurring of the usage of the tools for systemic and non systemic in a way that we haven't really before. So we can often focus on politics when thinking about adaptability and look at the presidential administration managing democracy with the opposition, but we can also focus on technology. So lots of people laughed at uh, Roskomnadzor, the communications regulator, when it tried and failed to block access to Telegram. But then look at what's happened recently. The same body has successfully been able to block VPNs and block access to the smart voting website. So the Kremlin is clearly adaptable, not only in the way that it manages opposition parties, be they systemic or non-systemic, but also when it comes to the technology uh, that they can use in order to frustrate the political plans of other actors in the system. Uh, so you write that um, at the end that Navalny's low ratings at the polls and modest political victories indicate that he's not Russia's political future. So I'm curious to hear why do you think he failed to gain a wider following? Well, I think, first of all, of course, we have to consider the environment in which Navalny has been operating, and that does not just include blocking him from elections, usually, with, a, with that one exception of, of the Moscow mayoral election in 2013, uh, but also, obviously, the media environment where he wasn't able to campaign properly and, and wasn't... Uh, uh, was, didn't didn't get access to tel to to television state controlled television channels and all all that sort of thing. So having a name recognition of seventy five percent in the beginning of this year, in that environment is is pretty good, and it's the result of very many years of hard work trying to raise attention with the with the uh, decreasingly uh, decreasing set of possibilities. Um, on the other hand, of course. Um, you can still point to the fact that he has a name recognition of 75%, but he has a support figure um, at the very least of 20% beginning of this year, and 14%, uh, I think it was in June when Nevada had the, had the last poll. And that's clearly not a majority. And if, even if every um, difficulty, every barrier to his participation were uh, lifted right now, and he would be free to, to uh, stand in elections, he would probably not win against Putin. And very, very likely not win. Um, so you can ask, of course, why, why that, why that is. And I think um, it has to do not so much with the policy positions that he's been advocating. I think he's been very skilled at, at tying things together, together, as we've said, but rather with a very uh, strong reluctance 
to trust anybody in in the political system uh, to to achieve something better. Um, we've we've talked about that that the the, uh, the 90s that are still being used as a scarecrow uh, scarecrow or uh, uh, as as an episode that many people remember and that that was actually a sort of quote unquote democratic uh, period in Russian history that brought you know economic crisis and social uh, social crisis and um, uh, Gunas Shafudinova has a great book on that um, particular. Uh, tactic of the Kremlin to reinvoke always the image of the, of the 1990s when you know trying to persuade people that things aren't as bad right now they, they clearly aren't so bad um, in many ways uh, living standards have been improving um, for many people and so for, for many it's still the idea that you know why should we change something if the stakes are so high that we get that we get back to a chaos so um, distrust, in, in political figures, and that includes those who are at the top right now, but at, at least it's, it's a stable situation. So that's, I think, an important, an, an important factor. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, part of the answer to that question is also that I think quite objectively, li liberalism is a minority faith in Russia, and, and that's... Um, <clears throat> It's 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 not a, a, a political position or ideology that that commands a very high support, and uh, just I just saw a few minutes before the interview a Levada poll asking people what kind of political system they would prefer, and you still find uh, that the the relative majority of the Russian people would prefer a Soviet uh, a system along Soviet lines. So, of course, there's a lot of caveats to that, and what does Soviet system mean to them? But on the face of it, I think that we can confidently say that liberalism is not that popular in Russia. And finally, you know, the the there are two events that are approaching. Of course, one will be in a few days, and that is the parliamentary elections. Uh, and then, of course, there's the 2024 question of what will happen. Will Putin continue? Will he go away? Who who would replace him, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, and like a lot of political systems, Russia's too runs on the cycle of the electoral, like electoral system, right? Like mobilizations happen around um, elections. Uh, or in this case, they try to tamp down those mobilizations. But nonetheless, you have you have these two events. Um, in regard to um, this two-stage plan, do you have any indication of what Navalny and his broader movement is thinking about the 2024 question? It's interesting. We often get that question, what are they planning for the elections? And I think that quickly is answered by smart voting, although they've been frustrated at so many turns that uh, that's been taking up lots of their time. And so maybe it's no surprise that they haven't articulated, um, at least recently, a vision for the medium term, never mind the long term. So it's not as if uh, Leonid Volkov, Lubov Sorbel are talking about 2024 that much. They're trying to deal with the state Duma elections. And our, our thinking, but maybe my co-authors will be able to add to this, our thinking is that they're going to get the elections over and done with. 
going to see how smart voting performs, even with all of the hurdles placed before it by the Kremlin. Then they can regroup, decide how what you know what team Navalny is going to look like for the next few years, as it's likely that Navalny will remain in prison and probably for longer than the original sentence, given the extra charges against him. So they'll regroup and think about this this new vision because they are going to have to come up with a new narrative uh, about what Team Navalny is going to do because so much has changed this year and so quickly. I think they're still spinning from that. Um, and that's completely understandable. There's absolutely no judgment from us about that. Um, you know, it, it surprised us when writing the book. We were, you know, finishing the book when the organizations are labeled extremists. And I think hopefully the book isn't dated immediately. We, we show the direction of travel, but it's just that that direction of travel um, has been continued uh, and then accelerated. So I, I think we're, we're yet to see what Team Navani is going to say about 2024, never mind 2030 or 2036. I think strategy-wise, I would be surprised if they were targeting the presidential elections, um, assuming that that situation would be similar to what it is now, that, would, that, would, that they would try to come up with a, with a candidate or try to apply smart voting to the presidential election, because it's, it's really very unlikely that somebody else than Putin would win those, um, win those elections. What I think their strategy rather is, they're not really caring so much about what happens at the very top, because it's very clear that that Putin will be in power in one way or the other, but to subvert his power um, in the mid and the, and the lower ranks of the, of the political system. And that's what smart voting is actually um, good for, to tell the elites that it's not a guaranteed ticket into the power structures when they campaign on a United Russia ticket, to say, to reintroduce political competition into these very, very many different um, races in, in the regions in, on lower tier elections to um, to introduce competition on all of these levels, and by that to slowly, slowly um, chip away at the power base uh, that that Putin currently commands. And when that power base is shaking, so might he, right? Um, it's not about replacing Putin, um, but it's really about um, about shaking his base. Before we, we we end, I'd like to give each of you a chance to maybe say something that you'd get a chance to say or clarify something about your book or about, you know, the political situation in Russia today and, you know, the future of Navalny and his movement. Yeah, I wanted to add on this this on this question about the future. I think that one of also of the reasons why we don't give a definitive answer uh, to that question is the, the the sheer pace of transformation that we have seen in in what is almost a year now of Russian politics. And it is true that we wrote that book quite quick, but uh, even during that very short-term writing, so many things happened. And uh, we started discussing that project when Navalny was coming back to Russia. And once we were at the point of editing, the FBK of, uh, didn't exist as an organization anymore. There had been hundreds of criminal cases against uh, members of this team. So this is also, uh, I think, something uh, quite important about where we're heading and, and why we can't really answer very definitive questions about where Russia is headed. Is that yeah, that the, the this amount and pace of transformation that I think uh, struck many many observers of Russian politics, not not only us. Well, on the question of 
the future of Russia is Navalny the future of Russia. Uh, some readers might be frustrated that we don't give a really, really clear answer. But our response to that is that it's too soon to tell. And what we try to say is that, you know, one of the distinctive things about Navalny is that he wants to create a Russia in which it's up to the people to decide whether he's the future or not, not up to three um, West European political scientists to decide, but more importantly, it's not to the Putin administration and law enforcement to decide, you know, keep him in prison, and then he definitely can't be the future of Russia. So, you know, we don't give a definitive answer. The book is not full of lots of, you know, moral judgments. We're there to give a, a picture for people who are maybe less familiar with Russian politics, but we also hope that people who are familiar with Russian politics can also get something from the book. That was Jan Dolbaum, Morvan Lalouette, and Ben Noble. Jan-Marie Dolbaum is a postdoctoral researcher at Bremen University, specializing in activism and civil society in Russia. Morvan Lalouette is a PhD candidate in comparative politics at the University of Kent, Canterbury, UK. And Ben Noble is lecturer in Russian politics at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies, an associate fellow at Chatham House, and a senior research fellow at the Higher School of Economics, Moscow. His research interests include Russian domestic politics, legislative politics, and the lawmaking process in non-democratic states. So, Rusana, we just heard this really interesting interview about Alexei Navalny. And of course, this isn't the first podcast I've done about Navalny. Um, but this is certainly the first book that, uh, that I, at least in English, that I know of that's been written about Navalny in a, in a comprehensive way. So I was just curious, you know, what were some of your takeaways from this interview? I definitely learned a lot from this interview, even though obviously Navalny is a political figure I knew about. And I guess the main takeaways for me were um, that the book really shows the complexity of Navalny as a political figure, right? Uh, I think the authors did a great job showing Navalny and his development over time and also showing his groundedness in the broader historical context and um, emphasizing the structural conditions that produced him as a political uh, figure. So, for example, um, the, during the interview, they talked about Navalny, the liberal, right? Navalny, who embraced and later criticized the liberal movement of the late 1980s and 1990s, uh, or this whole conversation about corruption, right? Um, corruption for Navalny is a way to mobilize people and to bring back real political competition in the political arena. Um, it's not something that is the end goal, but rather the tool and the reason that he focused that he focuses on corruption so much is because, you know, there are very few other opportunities left uh, for him to kind of intervene. Um, so that just goes to the point about the structural conditions that produced him, you know. Um, yeah, let me let me let me respond to this this one first, because I actually you 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 know, you raise a really interesting point and in, in about Navalny as a complex political figure because one of the things that that you know i i came away with too was we often don't talk about navalny as a a political figure who's changed and evolved over time 
right? Who who maybe had certain positions in the past and has changed them or re, re, redefined them or retooled them based on politi- the political situation in Russia um, or his his ability or desire to appeal to a broad mass of people. And as you said, like corruption is is one of those issues where like nobody is for corruption, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> nobody says, yeah, you know, corruption's a great idea. Let's do that. Like everybody's against corruption. Um, so you can really like bridge the various differences, I think, in Russian society. And it, and it is an issue that, you know, a lot of people are, you know, a, a against, but also fed up with. Um, so so what, what other takeaways did you did you have? And the, the other one is, I guess, uh, this whole conversation about replacing Putin and the United Russia and how um, the struggle uh, led by Navalny made people more open towards the idea of strategic alliances. I think that's um, that was mentioned towards the end of the interview, right? So liberalism may not be popular or perhaps never has been popular in uh, Russia. Um, but, you know, the fact that Navalny is open to Soviet-style social policies, such as free access to medicine, education, etc., may broaden his appeal among voters, right? And similarly, what I'm seeing happening, for example, during these elections this weekend, uh, left-wing politicians who don't stand a chance of organizing their own party are using the Communist Party t- as a platform to 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 run for office, right? And so um, I guess maybe I just want to end on a hopeful note or something. Um, it gives me, yeah, th- this idea of strategic alliances gives me hope that Perhaps even though the movement and the institutions that Alexei built may be formally dismantled, the political momentum that he created, especially among young people, will find other ways for realizing itself. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think this is this is one of the 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 exciting and interesting things about Navalny because a lot of people you know, we'll say, well, you know, and, and, and the interview addressed this at the end, but people will say, well, you know, his like popularity rating in the polls or whatever is low. He has no, if there was an election between him and Putin, Putin would win all, all of this stuff, which is all true. But I think the significance of him as, as a, as a figure and as a, as this developing movement that he's certainly in front of, um, is that it opens space right it opens space for politics as such and the in the fact that yeah you know the the government may try to manage you know the electoral cycle and politics as best it can but uh Navalny's intervention and and this this move to try to form some kind of strategic alliances has un, you know ended up in a really unlikely outcome and that is the possible revitalization of the Russian Communist Party, which nobody would have imagined. Yeah, which is in full swing. Yeah, which which nobody would have imagined, you know, five years ago even, even though, you know, for over the last decade, I've been reading off and on about how there's this new crop of um, Communist Party members who are trying to change the internal politics of the party and actually make it a real opposition party. 
uh, even within the system. Uh, once it gets rid of these old dinosaurs that seem to never go away. But what's fascinating, and you mentioned this in, in the intro about how, you know, people who aren't necessarily Communist Party members are using it as a shell, right, to, to enter into electoral politics. And that's actually something that is similar to what's going on here in the United States among left-wing people, where they're using, say, the Democratic Party as a means to run for office just because... A, it's easier to get on the ballot, right, if you run as a Democrat. Same, you know, running as a Communist Party member, though in some regions in Russia, <laughs> it's becoming more difficult. Um, but, but nonetheless, it, that name recognition gives some sort of legitimacy as a potential legitimate candidate, right? And then on top of this smart voting where, you know, this strategic alliance where they're saying, look, you know, yeah, you may not be... Uh, support the communist party but you definitely should be against united russia and this is a way to dislodge their grip over you know local regional and and federal politics exactly and i definitely feel like this is one of the outcomes of uh, navalny's political interventions that people think about political alliances more pragmatically like well i have this agenda but like how can i actually get into the duma and like make things happen i need to <laughs> perhaps join the communist party even though like i don't really buy into it yeah it's it's definitely i i i think i think it's um you know it some people might be naive in hearing you saying you know i want to end on like a hopeful you know gives me hope but Actually, I think it does. It, it gives some semblance of like, you know, actually participating in real politics as opposed to, and what I mean by that, as opposed to holding some kind of ideological line or moral position and basically being relegated to the margins as a result, right? Politics is, is a lot of time, real politics in my view requires a level of, strategic and tactical maneuvering, but also compromise and, and really looking at the really existing political conditions and trying to figure out a way to work and be political within those conditions to be effective. Well, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova. Uh, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Um, if you do like this podcast, please help spread the word, share it on social media, tell your friends, tell your family, anyone who you think might be interested. Also, feel free to drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or at the podcast website, srbpodcast.org. Let us know what you think. Uh, let us know what's good, what doesn't work for you, and maybe we'll try to change some things. And as always, if you uh, like the podcast, we'd love your support. The SRB podcast and all of its various programming is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions alike to keep it completely free with no paywalls or advertisements. So please help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the SRB table of ranks. And until next week, bye.
Pasito, ve. 